Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello and welcome back. I want to say a big thank you to all of you who have welcomed back this podcast so enthusiastically. I felt a tiny bit rusty, honestly, and your support and kind words have so energized me. So thank you. Okay, I I have a confession. It is about my email inbox and a terrible habit I have acquired over the last few years. If you're an inbox zero person, beware, because I am about to horrify you. So my habit is that when I come across something in my inbox that I find interesting or I want to read a second time or is, I don't know, a newsletter from someone who's writing I really love, but I don't have time to read it at that moment, I mark it as unread and just leave it languishing there until I get back around to it. The number in that little red notification circle routinely hits the triple digits as, you know, a result. So that's a little mortifying. But the thing is, is that I actually do often get back around to those messages. Recently, I had some airport time to kill and I spent some time going through them, which is how I was introduced to Marie Howe and her incredible poetry. Y'all. Okay, so... I can't tell you how late I feel to this party. I have mentioned her to like six people and all of them have been like, oh yeah, she's amazing. And then looked at me like, oh, how did you not know about her? (laughs) Do you even read, bro? Anyway, in case I am not actually the last human to have been introduced to the genius that is Murray Howe and her poetry, you should know a few things. She served as Poet Laureate for New York State from 2012 to 2014. She's the poet in residence at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine and a chancellor at the Academy of American Poets. She's published four volumes of poetry, one of which, What the Living Do, she wrote as an elegy to her brother who died of AIDS. It is a volume of grief and love and the connection that continues after death. I lost a beloved uncle to AIDS when I was 12, and I've known other losses as well, and her words are a magnificent gift. You know, I said it way back in episode three when we talked about poetry for the first time on this podcast, but I feel compelled to say it again. There is a plethora of brilliant, accessible, heart-expanding poetry out there being made by writers gifted at bringing the world and our humanness in it, alive in new and undiscovered ways. If you haven't found poetry that you've personally connected to, or, you know, your experience of poetry is limited to your 10th grade reading of Shakespeare's sonnets for Mrs. Thatcher's English class, I implore you to get curious and just dig around a little bit. bit. 
you know, keep listening here today. Go back and listen to episode three with Mary Oliver's work or episode 19 with Joy Harjo's. Poetry can uncover deeper layers of richness in our lives, and we owe it to ourselves to stay curious around it. Now, today's poem is actually quite short, but you know I have a ton to say, so let's get started. This is Marie Howe's poem, Hurry. We stop at the dry cleaners and the grocery store and the gas station and the green market and hurry up, honey, I say, hurry, as she runs along two or three steps behind me, her blue jacket unzipped and her socks rolled down. Where do I want her to hurry to? To her grave? To mine? Where one day she might stand all grown? Today, when all the errands are finally done, I say to her, honey, I'm sorry I keep saying hurry. You walk ahead of me. You be the mother. And hurry up, she says, over her shoulder, looking back at me, laughing. Hurry up now, darling, she says. Hurry, hurry, taking the house keys from my hands. Right? Okay. So this poem is from her collection entitled The Kingdom of Ordinary Time. And I just want to share the book blurb on the back of it because I think it encapsulates so much of what is just magical here. It says, hurrying through errands, attending a dying mother, helping her child down the playground slide, the speaker in these poems wonders, what is the difference between the self and the soul, the secular and the sacred? Where is the kingdom of heaven? And how does one live in ordinary time during those apparently unmiraculous periods of everyday trouble and joy. So good, right? I was raised Catholic, so ordinary time, capitalized, is a familiar idea to me. I'm not actually sure whether this concept is also a part of other faith traditions or not, but for the uninitiated, ordinary time is the season of the church year when Catholics are encouraged to grow and mature in the daily expression of their faith outside of the great seasons of celebration like Christmas and Easter or the great periods of penance with Advent and Lent. Oddly enough, this idea actually came up recently in a conversation with a dear friend before I'd even been introduced to Marie Howe's work. We were talking about the way time moves when a person is in the midst of grief. She also comes from a contemplative Catholic background and we found this concept of ordinary time versus the way time moves during a season of processing grief, a useful way to think of things. You know, she said she felt as though she were sliding in and out between ordinary time and capitalized grief time, and that each of those times demanded very different things from her. I found that so powerful. Now, in this book blurb, that last question really landed for me. How does one live in ordinary time during those apparently unmiraculous periods of everyday trouble and joy? I mean, doesn't this just get right at the heart of this poem of what she's pointing out here? She opens the poem in this first stanza by saying, We stop at the dry cleaners and the grocery store and the gas station and the green market and hurry up, honey, I say, hurry, as she runs along two or three steps behind me her blue jacket unzipped and her socks rolled down. 
how much more ordinary can life get? Running errands and ticking off item after item on our to-do lists, caught in the bustle of our necessities, we hardly notice the urgency that has crept in. But this is where the poet's attention to detail catches us, right? She does notice, doesn't she? She recognizes her own urgency and her command to her daughter to hurry, hurry, hurry up, honey, hurry. And she recognizes these small details in her daughter's appearance, her blue jacket and how it's come unzipped, her, how her socks have, have rolled down. I want to come back to this noticing in a moment, but for now, let's just make a note of that. And before we move forward into the next stanza, I just want to pause for a second and think about how familiar this feels. It does to me anyway. On any given day of balancing the things that I need to do with the things that I want to do, the obligations and the interruptions and the interactions that build the relationships that matter to me, I can often feel this urge to hurry, honey, hurry. I have worked for years to actively remove the word busy from my own vocabulary. It is a word that I have come to believe is not only overused, but is actively destructive in our lives. You know, when was the last time you met someone who wasn't busy? It is so often the very first word that we use to describe our lives. And, you know, I get it. It is legitimate. We are most of the time quite busy. But there's something in the way we use it as a culture that often seems to remove our agency around it. And that has come to be sort of this catch-all excuse for why we aren't living into our values in the way that we mean to, in the way that we want to, in the way that we deeply crave to, I think. I mean, again, I am not implying that our worlds aren't indeed busy. It's just that there is a certain level of social currency in the word, a sort of shorthand for I am so important and the weight of the world is currently resting on my shoulders, so I don't have time for fill in the blank. There's some ego there, right? And perhaps even more commonly, I think it's become a way of avoiding uncomfortable conversations around boundaries. We say, I'm so busy, and often what we mean is, please don't ask me to do this thing or spend this time because I won't know how to say no to you, and then I'll feel even more overwhelmed and burned out and drowning in resentment. Okay, I mean, just let me be the first to raise my hand for being totally guilty of this. The thing is, when we do this, we're asking someone else to manage those boundaries for us, and we're not even asking it directly, right? Newsflash, no one else will manage our boundaries for us. They can barely manage their own, y'all. One more note about this, and then I will move on. The word busy, and honestly, also the word overwhelmed, strike me as overgeneralized terms that we tend to use when we're actually just not very clear about what we need and why those boundaries are important. Because here's the thing, the only way to create sustainable healthy boundaries is to actually understand what they're there for, what they're protecting, what they're preventing. And that means that we have to know what matters to us, what our limits are, where our priorities lie. That's actually a little harder than just throwing a half crazed, I'm so busy out into the world and wondering why nobody gets that you just don't have the time. I'm going to take 
maybe a half step down off of the soapbox for now, but I have a feeling one or two more things may creep back in before we're done for the day. And in case this wasn't clear, I think it's a reasonable association between this first stanza's list of errands and admonishment to her daughter to hurry, honey, hurry, with this greater idea of busyness. The urgent need to get through the errands as quickly as possible because there's always more to do, always, always so much to do. So let's jump into this next stanza where Hal drops her ton of bricks straight on our busy ass heads. She says, where do I want her to hurry to? To her grave? To mine? Where one day she will stand all grown? Damn, mic drop, right? Where do I want her to hurry to? To her grave? To mine? Whew, I mean, what do we win if we rush through our days or rush through our lives? What's at the end? Our graves. This reminds me so much of the underlying point, I mean, it's the overt point, of Oliver Berkman's fantastic book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I have likely mentioned this book here before since I am a little obsessed with it, and I've made a habit of dipping in and out of it every few months. The overarching point of his book is that 4,000 weeks is the average human lifespan, and no matter how efficiently we manage our time, that's it. That's all we get. The book is rooted in acknowledging our own finitude, as he puts it. Put bluntly, the fact of our own imminent death. There is a section in the introductory chapter, which he literally named Introduction. In the long run, we're all dead, where he says, This book is written in the belief that time management as we know it has failed miserably and that we need to stop pretending otherwise. This strange moment in history when time feels so unmoored might in fact provide the ideal opportunity to reconsider our relationship with it. Productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed and trying to clear the decks simply makes them fill up faster. Nobody in the history of humanity has ever achieved work-life balance, whatever that might be. And you certainly won't get there by copying the, quote, six things successful people do before 7 a.m. The day will never arrive when you finally have everything under control, when the flood of emails has been contained, when your to-do lists have stopped getting longer, when you're meeting all of your obligations at work and in your home life, when nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball, and when the fully optimized person you've become can turn at long last to the things life is really supposed to be about. Let's start admitting, let's start by admitting defeat. None of that is ever going to happen. But you know what? That's excellent news. Mm, Right? Hurry, honey, hurry, Marie Howe writes. Hurry so that we can get to the dry cleaners and the green market and the gas station. But in her questions, where do I want her to hurry to? To her grave? To mine? Where one day she will stand all grown? She acknowledges that what she wants is not to be hurrying at all, to slow time down, to slow down the stretch of time before life draws to a close, to slow down the time before her daughter stands all grown. Isn't this what we all mean when we say life is moving too fast? You know, time, even if we disregard its abstract nature, hasn't changed speeds. 
The same 60 seconds make up a minute now as they did when we were seven years old and the summer days stretched out endlessly in front of us. And I think we'd all agree that there are plenty of moments that we would prefer not to slow down at all, waiting at the DMV, for example, or in the dentist chair. All of this hurrying is about getting through the things that we don't want to do so that we can get to the things we do want to do. But Berkman nails it in that introduction. We will never become that fully optimized person who can finally, at long last, turn to the things that life is really supposed to be about because we've, you know, finished all the rest of it. But it's his earlier words that are really at the heart here, where he says, productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed, and trying to clear the decks simply makes them fill up again faster. Efficiency makes us feel more rushed. I don't know about you, but that line hit hard. It sort of flies in the face of the way we've come to think about things as a culture, right? That the more efficient we are, the more we can get done, and the more we can get done, the happier we'll be, or maybe at least the more value we'll have. At the very least, we expect that the reward for our efficiency and checking off so many things on our to-do list will at least be a sense of relief. But it's not. It's just more rushing. Hurry, honey, hurry. Hurry to your grave and mine. Hurry toward adulthood. Mm. Okay, let's keep going. I want to look at the next two stanzas together. She says, Today, when all the errands are finally done, I say to her, Honey, I'm sorry I keep saying hurry. You walk ahead of me. You be the mother. And hurry up, she says, over her shoulder, looking back at me, laughing. Hurry up now, darling, she says. Hurry, hurry, taking the house keys from my hands. Mm. This section reminds me so much of that old 70s song by Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. If you don't know it, definitely do yourself a favor and give it a listen because it's gorgeous and makes me cry every time. The song begins with these two sections. It says... My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And then the refrain is, And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then you know we'll have a good time then. Okay, it's it's really weird to just say a song instead of sing it, right? But nobody wants to hear me sing. So, okay, like the song goes on with the son getting older and the father having more time and wanting more of his son's time. But the son does indeed grow up to be just like his father and has no time to spend, though he also keeps promising that they'll get together some other time and they'll have a good time then. It's the busy thing again, right? Later, when I have more time. Later, when I have less to do. But we never have less to do and we never have more time. So later always stays at some point in the future. In our poem, it's really interesting to me that she opens these last two stanzas stanzas, with, Today when all the errands are finally done, I say to her, Honey, I'm sorry I keep saying hurry. When all of the errands are finally done. Something really interesting here to me is the way she's positioned these lines after that second stanza where she questions where the heck she wants her daughter to hurry to. 
That second stanza is this acknowledgement that this hurrying is not at all what she wants. And yet, it is not until after all the errands are finally done that she can turn to her daughter and say, sorry for asking you to hurry. Even in the midst of recognizing that this isn't what she wants to do, even in the midst of realizing that she wants something other than rushing through her life and her daughter's life and her daughter's childhood, she cannot bring herself to stop the hurry until everything is finally done. But Oliver Berkman's right, isn't he? The to-do list never stops getting longer. The errands are only finally done for today, but tomorrow there will be a whole new set to hurry through. And here's the thing I want to be clear on. I get that there is no way out of some version of the errands. For most of us, you know, I don't know, hiring a personal assistant to take care of these parts of our lives is just not a realistic proposition. And honestly, even if it were, it would not change the underlying truth here. We all have things to do that simply must be done, that often fall under some version of the heading managing life. We have to buy groceries at some point and we have to prepare food to eat, even if that's, you know, peeling a wrapper or choosing from a takeout menu. We have to do our laundry and we have to go to work and we have to put gas in the car. She's not wrong here. We have to get these errands done. But what we don't have to do is feel quite so urgent about it, so rushed and hurried. Let's go back to her first stanza in these last two lines. As she runs along two or three steps behind me, her blue jacket unzipped and her socks rolled down. I said earlier that I would come back to this because I think there's a clue to the answer tucked right in here. You know what I'm about to say, right? In the noticing of the details of her daughter's appearance, her jacket is blue and unzipped, her socks are rolled down. There's an indication that she's looking at her kid here. Maybe it's just to hurry her along. Maybe it's just to look behind her and make sure she's still there, but she's looking. And this is where agency lives in this moment, right? Yes, you have to go to the dry cleaners and the green grocers and the gas station, but she's with you. She's here. And there is a choice implicit in the acknowledgement that her child is there that makes it a choice about attention, a choice about noticing, Her daughter is running along two or three steps behind her, and instead of slowing down, she chooses to admonish, hurry, honey, hurry. This isn't a parenting guilt thing. There is not a parent, or a human for that matter, who hasn't felt impatient in this way. I recently spent some time with my mom, who is moving slower these days, and I had to stop myself from, like, tapping my foot while she moseyed through the grocery store leisurely, taken in the sights. You know, we had things to do and appointments to keep. And there's a decent chance that the total number of times that I will ever be in a grocery store with my mom again is pretty small. That she's hurrying toward her grave just a few decades ahead of me hurrying toward my own. And, you know, then what will the three minutes that she paused to ogle the end cap really matter? If our errands take us a little longer, if we're less efficient with them, what then? What are we willing to trade for that sense of urgency that we move with the world through by default? I have an exercise with my coaching clients that I like to do called, what suffering do you choose? I know, I sound like a super fun coach, right? But I do think that this is a critical part of real decision-making in our lives. 
everything comes with some sort of cost. And to make decisions that we can really live with, it's often more beneficial to look at those costs than the benefits. The cost of not hurrying through the errands here could potentially be pretty crappy, right? We only know what is stated here in the poem, so we don't know if the speaker has another kid to pick up from daycare at a specific time or, I don't know, her daughter's tuba lessons to make. Maybe her daughter really struggles in school if she doesn't get enough sleep and slowing these errands down will just get them home super late. Maybe this is the only chance this week to stop at the dry cleaners for the suit she needs for a job interview or to go to the greengrocers in order to have enough food for her daughter's lunch tomorrow. The point is there could be any number of ways suffering might result if these errands aren't fit into the time schedule allotted. I'm not here to pretend I know the full extent of what that suffering might be. But there's also suffering that results from the hurrying. There's the feeling of life passing by, of hurrying toward our graves, of suddenly looking up to find a grown-up where your child once stood. There's the reliance on a future time that may or may not ever arrive, and a reliance on the daughter's willingness to put down her own hurry to spend it with you. There's the simple cost of the struggle during the errand running itself, of feeling rushed and frustrated and exasperated with your kid. That suffering may be more abstract, but it is no less real. And the reality is that some days, the suffering that stems from the hurry might be the suffering you choose, worth it for any number of reasons. And I think the important thing here is that there is a choice, maybe not an obvious one or an easy one or a comfortable one, but the speaker in this poem does indeed have some choice here. And also, maybe that choice isn't even as binary as it might seem. Maybe choosing mindfulness is all it might take to change the way this feels. A friend of mine once shared an example of the benefits of mindfulness that her therapist had told her, and it stayed with me for years. The example was centered around the idea of being late for a presentation. She said that part of being mindful meant that you stayed with what is, so the fact that you're late and you can't change that reality now. And while you might need to move with some hurry and urgency, you opt not to feel hurried or urgent. And not only does that stave off the parasympathetic nervous system responses that rarely lead to the thought patterns and behaviors that we're you know, excited about, it also allows us not to set off a chain reaction of fumbles and mistakes that take us even further away from where we'd ideally like to be. In this last stanza where her daughter is being the mother and turning over her shoulder to the speaker and saying, hurry, honey, hurry, notice that she is laughing. There's something beautiful to me in this. In saying to her daughter, you be the mother, she is also inviting a moment of empathy and sharing and learning. You be the mother and I'll be the child. I'll try on your role for a minute, see what you see and hear what you hear. And she learns that she says hurry a lot. She also learns that it's possible to laugh while doing it. And that's not nothing. Maybe hurrying through the errands still has the potential to be connective and fun. Maybe while she's noticing the details of her daughter's unzipped blue jacket and rolled down socks, she recognizes these small indicators of childhood and pauses for the fraction of a second 
it takes to recall that her daughter is hurrying toward adulthood, whether she hurries through errands or not. And maybe it creates a space for a hug or a question about school while she waits for the gas to pump or the dry cleaning to be pulled from the back. These small moments of connection add up the way compound interest does in a bank account. We can squeeze a lot of it into errand running or home improvement projects or chopping carrots for soup. I've said it here before and I'll likely say it approximately 7,284 more times here. Visibility is often what love looks like in practice. Feeling seen is so often what it feels like to be loved. And to see our loved ones, we have to look at them. We have to turn our attention to them. That can happen at the grocery store. It can happen en route to the dry cleaners. There can be hurrying and laughing, especially if we don't get caught up feeling hurried while we do it. And just, you know, before you go down the rabbit hole of, but that's pretend and the kid doesn't know what the pressures of paying bills are. I do just want to mention that, well, sure, that's true. I think there is a warning also being offered here in this last section. You know, returning again to that Cat's Cradle song I mentioned earlier, the end of that song is the retired dad wanting his son to make time for him and being put off with the same words he used when his son wanted time with him as a child. There's an echo of that sentiment here as well. Her daughter is mothering the way she was mothered. She's sharing her learned perceptions of what that looks like in this moment. But what might that look like when the daughter really has hurried through childhood and is standing all grown? Which brings me to that last line, taking the house keys from my hands. I am pretty much out of time here, but I do want to just squeeze in one more thought. This made me think a little bit about episode one. Do you remember this line from our passage there where Brian Doyle says, we are utterly open with no one in the end, not mother and father, not wife or husband, not lover, not child, not friend. We open windows to each, but we live alone in the house of the heart. There's something in this last line of our poem here today that recalls that conversation about our heart houses and what it looks like to brick and unbrick them, to throw windows open to one another, to carry our own entirety alone inside our hearts. This image of the speaker's daughter taking the house keys from her hands feels like a confession of vulnerability and absolute love. How much of our hurry is rooted in trying to keep ourselves too busy to have to truly face the realities of our own finitude, that of those we love? How often are we trying to outrun time and the changes it inevitably imposes on our lives? In this poem, she touches this, right? Where do I want her to hurry to? To her grave? To mine? Where one day she will stand all grown? There can be grief in that passage of time, and so we hurry, honey, hurry, so that we can avoid looking behind us and seeing the jacket zipped and the socks rolled up and our children groan. You know, I know there's so much more to get from this poem. Every time I read it, I feel like I see some new angle and application for these words, some new way to interpret them, some new way they fit into my life and the ways I want to be living it. This is the magic of poetry. Why we can return over and over to the same words and have them break open our hearts anew and in such poignant and unexpected ways. 
I have no idea what Marie Howe might have meant for me to get from these words, exactly what she was seeking to capture or convey. This podcast merely reflects my own thoughts and opinions, and I'm speaking solely from my own limited experiences. So maybe you heard something different in these words. Maybe I will tomorrow. And isn't that amazing? So again, Hurry is a poem from Marie Howe's collection, The Kingdom of Ordinary Time, which, as always, I will link in the show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. Okay, so yes, I'm running just a little bit over time here, but let's finish with our listener contribution this week, which comes from Nikki Kay. She says, hey there, Cindy. I just finished Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and it might be the best book I've read in years. I think you should do a podcast with it, but I wanted to share this quote from it that really hit me, the quote. Friendship is friendship and charity is charity. The people who give you charity are never your friends. It is not possible to receive charity from a friend. And Nikki says, I am someone who was raised on the idea that self-sufficiency was the ultimate end-all, be-all, and that a lack of it is something shameful. It's taken a lot of work and therapy to help me realize that by never asking my friends for help when I need it, I'm essentially judging them when they ask me. It's been a struggle to live into this, and I'm often, still often beset by shame when my friends help me, but I'm learning. Slowly, but I'm learning. Thanks so much for sharing this. Oh, thank you, Nikki. Man, this resonates so strongly with me. That work is definitely part of my life as well, and I believe in us. We can do it. Now, I haven't read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow yet, but I do feel like every single person I've talked to who has read it has raved. So it is on the short list. Thank you so much for the podcast recommendation and for sharing this quote and your thoughts. Please share your quotes and thoughts because I definitely need some more and I would love to include them here. Now, next week is the gorgeous work of Jhumpa Lahiri, so I am so excited about that. In the meantime, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.